You're listening. No. You're listening to the Buns.com Podcast Network. (laughs) (laughs) Buns, Buns, Buns. I want to give you something real, but I don't know where to start. Darling, let's make a deal. I want to give you my heart. I would trade anything for love. Hey guys, Koji here. How's it going? How's your week? I hope you enjoyed last week's podcast about cryptocurrency. There may be more to come. Uh, But this week, this week, Orin and Laura still on vacation. So don't hold it against them that there's no This Week in Buns. What we do have, however, is our second installment of an ongoing series called Ask Boris. If you've ever had any questions... Uh, about the world, about your life, about anything at all. Boris is the guy to ask. And you can hit him up at askboris at buns.com. This week's round of questions is uh, more of a personal sort of swing on things, things that Boris is passionate about, and it comes through. So uh, I strongly suggest you listen. Without further ado, here is Ask Boris. Too much shit in your apartment? Get rid of it today on the Buns app. Available in the App Store, Google Play Store, or online at buns.com. Hey guys, welcome again to our second ever Ask Boris segment. Uh, I could prattle on for a while about what we're going to talk about, but honestly, I have no idea. <laughs> so I think I'm just going to let you get started. Hello, friends. It's Boris. Y'all know me, and or if you don't, you'll get to know me a little better real soon. Um, for this episode, I put the word out to everybody else. What do you want me to talk about? I offered a bunch of different options. You know, your housing and your relationship advice from someone incredibly unqualified to be giving it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And what you came back with was, why don't you talk about stuff that you're interested in? And shucks, twist my arm, I guess I could do that. Talk about stuff that I'm interested in and can go on at length and ad nauseum about. I suppose I could do that. So, I put the word out. You people, you lovely, lovely people, have asked me a series of questions about things that I'm interested in. And I think the best thing to do is to jump right into it. Um, fair warning, this isn't so much advice like the last episode. This is going to be more informational, and you may not be super interested in the information. But if you stick around, you might find out that you are. Who knew lead could be so damn interesting? And that is the first question. From... Gertrina Reynolds. How about the history of the use of lead, from cosmetics to household service and decoration, to the letters used in printing, plus the different levels of health concerns related to prolonged exposure, and the differences in effect from having it in frame panes of glass in your window to putting it on your face every day, perhaps also diving into the lead pipe issue and how it affects drinking water. And are there still applications where its use is warranted? Whoa, hold on. Sorry. People put it on their face? They used to, yeah. White lead used to be a common cosmetics ingredient. Whoa. But we'll get to that. 
Sorry. So <laughs> jumping the gun. So, excellent question, Katrina. As a metal worker of some 10 or so years, I've had my fair share of run-ins with lead. Uh, not, to, not to brag, just, uh, you know, no big deal. But um, this is something that's really interesting to me. Um, I like it because lead's a humble metal. If you can ascribe such a characteristic to metal, I would probably put lead in that category. You know, steel. Steel, you know, gives a very, steel and iron, very clear mental image. You know, gold, silver. But lead. Lead's quiet, it's behind the scenes, but it's actually got a really interesting history. It starts, as far as we can tell, um, as being the very first metal to be deliberately smelted and worked with. Uh, smelting's taking an ore and turning it into the actual uh, bulk metal. Um, and evidence of this goes all the way back to about 10,000 BC in the form of little lead beads that were excavated from, uh, I'm going to mangle the pronunciation of this, uh, Gobelki Tepe. It's a... Uh, Neolithic archaeological site in Turkey, uh, one of the first large structures known uh, to have been built by humans, and among other things found there were little lead beads, probably strung on a necklace or something, they were pierced. And as far as we can tell, that's the very, very first, the oldest deliberately smelted metal. That honor goes to the humble, forgettable lead. Um, it's very easy to smelt. So it's believed that lead was the introductory vehicle for most or all other forms of metal smelting, at least in the old world. Um, you can put uh, lead ore, like galena, say, into a campfire, just an open fire. And most of the time, you'll be able to, after it burns out the next morning, you'll find little beads of metallic lead. Because it melts at normal fire temperatures, and if you can get a reducing environment in the fire, that's like with no oxygen getting in, um, you can produce metallic lead very, very easily. Um, fast forward a bit, but in, uh, in the U.S., early uh, pi um, uh, settler pioneers, they would sometimes uh, smelt lead for their bullets if they needed it by just finding galena ore and throwing it in their campfire. It can actually be that simple. So once you know how to smelt lead, probably done at first by accident, you can refine the process and apply it to other ores. Uh, you know, your copper and other stuff that led to humanity just taking a huge leap forward in terms of its ability to make tools and control materials. <sighs> so lead was probably the first to be deliberately made and its applications after that uh, branch out really, really fast. Because compared to most other metals, lead is very easy to work with. Um, you can smelt it at a very low temperature. It's not too picky about how you do so, and it can be cast. Casting's a big deal because it lets you basically make an almost finished good all at once. You just, you know, you get your mold, you pour it in, you let it, you know, cool, solidify, and that's it. That's it. You have a, in many cases, a finished product. You can bear this to something like steel or uh, earlier forged, um, yeah, compare it to steel where you need to make the bulk metal and then you need to draw it out into stock or into a finished product through forging. And this is just, it's super, super time intensive and laborious compared to casting where it does most of the work for you. 
So lead very quickly got used for all kinds of mundane everyday items. Um, historically, it got used for everything from utensils uh, to weights, um, ammunition for slings and um, smaller projectile we weapons, uh, all kinds of stuff. And it's always been kind of low key that way. You know, it was never like a like like a, like a weapon or armor metal, uh, not in the way that uh, bronze and other more recognized metals were. So, and because it's so meltable and easily reused, there's actually a kind of a a paucity of lead artifacts because they just tended to get melted down and reused so often. So the history of lead is both underappreciated and also poorly documented compared to some other things. Um, now, you asked about the health effects of lead. And I like this one because it... Uh, this is like a very common, you know, like pop history thing you've probably run into. Lead pipes led to the downfall of the Roman Empire. Common claim. Um, you know, like, they used lead pipes in a lot of their drinking water, stuff like that. People got lead poisoning from it. They made poor decisions, even, you know, up to the, like, government uh, level, the Caesars. And that led to their downfall. It's a tidy story. It also doesn't bear itself out. The health issues of working with lead were already well understood by the time of the, uh, the ancient Greeks and Romans. For example... Uh, you had the Greek uh, physician, Nicander, in about 200 BC, I believe. And he wrote a very good uh, look at the health issues that arose in ancient lead smelters. Uh, he gives a fairly comprehensive description of the symptoms of advanced lead poisoning, the neurological issues, uh, skin and muscle issues, stuff like that. And he directly associates it with their profession. Um, smelting of lead. In fact, lead's, lead, lead poisoning is probably one of the absolute first clearly identified occupational uh, chronic health issues. So the smelting of lead was understood, um, and if you fast forward, you had um, Roman engineers who were clearly identifying, like very explicitly, um, writing to their leaders saying that we should be avoiding the use of lead in, in, lead in drinking water pipes because it leads to health issues in people. They preferred ceramic or porcelain pipes, which were generally the best thing they had at the time um, compared to anything else. So you actually have a really good body of evidence that the issues with lead and the health issues associated with working with it and even drinking from vessels made of it, it was pretty well understood. So, basically, you can't give anybody the benefit of ignorance when it comes to issues of lead poisoning, and they do crop up over and over in history. For example, the Romans, uh, they loved their wine, and they would sweeten their wine with various substances. It was apparently disgustingly sweet, treacly stuff by our standards. Uh, they had a concentrate called defrutum, that they would water down into drinkable wine, um, convenient for an empire that had to ship wine all over the entire place, often on the back of pack animals. You want something that weighs a little less, so they formed a concentrate version. You add some water when you get before you drink it, and everybody's happy. But they would sweeten it with things, and one thing they commonly sweetened it with, 
And this was, again, something that people weren't okay with, and there were angry letters, you know, to local governors and magistrates about the issues with it. It was that unscrupulous merchants would sweeten their defrotum with white lead. Because, for whatever damn reason, I don't understand the chemistry of it, white lead is sweet. Lead itself is cheap, and if we're going back this far, uh, lead is definitely cheaper than most other than other sweetening alternatives. Like, well, in Europe, we're pretty much talking about honey, um, and people would use it to save some money and produce a product that tasted good despite being lower quality. Once we get past ancient Rome, and like they produced lead on basically in like a close to industrial scale in terms of how they organized their production. Uh, there were like vast, vast uh, smelteries operating in um, ancient Gaul, uh, mostly for the silver, but lead is often uh, produced as a byproduct of silver smelting. So they had tons and tons of lead. Uh, lead kind of falls uh, during the, uh, the migratory period, which otherwise known as the Dark Ages. Uh, mass production of lead kind of drops off, and it rebounds during the medieval period, um, and it very often gets used, and it was used for this before, but in the medieval period it starts in a big way. You see lead being used um, for utensils and stuff like that. You've all heard of pewter, I'm assuming. Uh, pewter is a tin alloy. It's tin with some other things added. Uh, usually to make it stronger, harder, uh, easier to work with, less brittle when you're uh, manipulating it, uh, or in the case of lead, really just to bulk it out, because tin is very expensive, and it has a use in making bronze, so it's always carried historically quite a price premium. Lead's cheap. You can bulk stuff out with it. Um, people knew the issues with eating off of lead plates and stuff, but, I mean, you know, if you're poor in medieval Europe, you really don't have much of a choice. Uh, well, I mean, if they wouldn't use pewter at all, they'd probably use like, wood utensils or something else, but the, the, the point stands. Um, lead was used extensively for pewter, for all kinds of household mundane things. Jewelry, utensils, anything that you could cast that you'd need to make fairly quickly and cheaply, it got used for. Um, eventually got used for the cladding of ships. I mean, I think that even the Romans maybe were using it for the cladding of ships. And, of course, once we start getting into the modern industrial age, lead finds all kinds of new uses in weapons and uh, machinery, uh, stuff like that. It's, I could go on. In any case, and yeah, actually, I, I, I completely blanked on uh, lead's role in um, things like pharmaceuticals. Yeah, uh, white lead, I think it was called a, a white litharge was its old term. Uh, did get used in cosmetics. It was used illicitly to flavor foods. It had all kinds of uses. So nowadays lead doesn't have such a big role uh, because, and this is funny, because we've discovered, quote unquote, I'm, I'm doing air quotes you guys can't see, but I feel it's important to point that out, that we've kind of discovered the issues with lead poisoning, but we always knew them. It was more that manufacturers have always, looking at defrotum all the way to the present, use lead wherever they can as a shortcut when they're unscrupulous and don't particularly care about the consequences for their customers. Because lead's always been cheap, it's always been easy to work with, it's always been flexible in its application, and people exploit that. Um, the big issue nowadays when people talk about lead poisoning actually comes from two modern sources. So it's not entirely fair to say we knew about the risks. 
um, leaded gasoline being one and lead paint being the other. Um, leaded gasoline, uh, when it was used, like, uh, I mean, it's still used in some places sparingly, but uh, when lead, uh, leaded gasoline was commonly used everywhere, you, you find in just people living in cities and stuff, elevated uh, l- lead levels just across the board. And um, once the issues with that were worked out and, you know, we found solutions. To, I mean, it was added to gasoline to reduce knocking, but there's other ways to reduce knocking. Lead just happened to be a particularly cheap and accessible one. Once we figured that out and the health issues specifically with that were realized, we kind of phased that out. And with lead paint, uh, the big issue was actually um, people slamming windows, believe it or not, slamming doors, stuff like that. Um, lead paint's pretty innocuous. I mean, it's not like most people are going around like sucking on the wall, but um, when you when lead paint gets old and you slam doors or windows, uh, the the lead paint will often powder if it's old. It'll flake and powder often in like a very fine form that can easily be inhaled, and that is a route of administration. That's actually it's pretty bad for people. Um, like, just touching metallic lead actually really isn't, like, a meaningful way to, like, get lead into your body. If you wash your hands, it's usually considered a standard, uh, like, an acceptable way to ameliorate that or, like, just wear, like, disposable gloves if you have to handle it. But touching it really isn't a big deal. Um, ingesting it or particularly inhaling it in a finely divided form like that is. Um, and the lead paint, once it gets dry and cracks, is an excellent way to get a lot of chronic lead exposure. So those are two new and exciting routes for uh, lead poisoning that we have realized and to more or less of a degree addressed. But um, that more or less takes us to the present. Um, If you're talking about modern uses for lead, there are things that you can't really uh, replace reasonably well with lead. Um, Stuff like... um, Soldering, for example, that's a big that's a big root of uh, lead exposure to people who uh, do electronics work and stuff. Um, uh, lead had there was a lot. There's always been lead in solder, and uh, lead-free solders um, have an issue with I think they I think it's called tin whisker. Uh, all tin, pure tin isn't a good soldering material. Lead has always improved its performance, so moving away from that has caused all kinds of issues in electronics. And substitutes aren't as good as lead, so you still see it there. Um, it's good soundproofing. Excellent soundproofing, actually. Lead sheet, it performs amazingly. Um, if you're doing a renovation or something, you can uh, staple it up behind a wall, and yeah, that is just, it's stellar, stellar stuff, I gotta say. Um, what else? Oh, you got it in wheel weights of your car. Uh, bullets, it, it's great for bullets. It's probably never gonna go away for that, because the alternatives are expensive, like uh, bismuth costs way, way more, doesn't perform as well. There's a, there's a host of things where, for economic reasons largely, to be honest, lead hasn't been uh, displaced. Um, and as long as those economic drivers are the ones that are mostly pushing material choices, lead is going to have a bunch of different uh, places in our society and in our lives. And I think that more or less sums up my reckons on lead, its history and its uses. I guess if you're getting shot with lead bullets, you're not really worried about lead poisoning. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it, it, kind of secondary. A uh, little down the list for you. Um, yeah, but believe it or not, uh, as I understand it, and again, not a medical professional, haven't done research specifically on this, 
uh, lead in bullets doesn't tend to be a serious issue. Like in a lot of cases, if a bullet's in a sensitive area, it's vastly preferable to leave it in place because any issues stemming from lead absorption from that are considered kind of negligible, consider, you know, next to the risk of nerve damage or whatever they're trying to avoid. Right. Um, yeah, it's an issue, but not as big as, uh, as one, uh, generally speaking, as one might think. That was fascinating. I've learned more about lead today than I have my entire life, and I, <laughs> I loved it. Oh, <laughs> uh, I hope you all did, too. Um, mm. Nadia Ule, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly. Nadia Ule asks, what are your thoughts on politeness to robots? i.e. saying thank you to Siri for doing a task. Now, this is... This, this one this one is, makes me feel a little weird because I, like, in my own bizarre, incomprehensible way, have always been one to uh, thank robots for doing what they do. It's bizarre. Don't ask me why I do it. I don't see other people doing this, but... Even just a little, a little nod of acknowledgement to the automatic doors just makes me feel a little better. Why? Why? Why, why do I care? It's not a, it's not a person. It doesn't have a mind. It's, its feelings aren't hurt if I don't do that. And I think about that, and then I think about the way that we often treat people in our day-to-day -day lives. Um, I mean. If you've got an Alexa at home, or not you, but just think about how many people who have Alexas at home and probably treat it with more courtesy than they do panhandlers or people on the street. And they sure as shit feel a lot more than your goddamn Alexa does. And it's, it's something that gives me great pause because... I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that like I'm a dick to panhandlers or something, you know, I try to treat them with courtesy and stuff, but there's still, it's, I think that's a kind of hypocrisy that does extend past the individual, like towards sort of a social level. And it, it, it's something that's never sat quite right. The way that people can so easily, without thinking about it, humanize the inhuman and dehumanize the extremely, extremely unshakably human. So, I think my thoughts about being polite to robots can be summed up as, well, there's nothing wrong with it. It's harmless, maybe even kind of quaint. But think about how you do that, and then think about how you interact with the actual human beings in society. The people who were socialized, and I'm not even just talking about panhandlers, but, you know, like just other people in the public sphere where we're socialized generally to be very closed off and to have a very particular way of conducting ourselves. And it should make you a little uncomfortable. I'm not saying you have to stop saying thank you to Siri or anything, but it's still something that bears some reflection. So I don't think I really have an answer for this question beyond it's something I've thought about myself because it applies to me and it I don't know. The the <laughs> I think my personal my personal answer is a kind of uncomfortable dot dot dot. But um I thank robots because uh, I'm just prepping myself for our eventual robot overlords. That is actually pretty pragmatic. Yeah, I got I yeah, can't this, fault that. There's got to be they I mean, eventually they're going to be sentient. I'm not going to know about it and they're going to appreciate my thank yous. So. Yeah. You know. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, you know, like, given the cloud, they may be taking receipts, like, at this very moment about this stuff. So, yeah, you know what? Like, better safe than sorry. That's, exactly. That's a very pragmatic way to approach it, actually. That's 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 got a good handle on things. I'm I'm I'm, I'm very ph- philosophical about it, but I like that. Although I do yell at my Alexa to get a job. That's just kidding. <laughs> no, you know that that would actually be fair. That would be extremely fair. Um. Up next. Ooh, Katie Campbell has said, "Can uh, can you talk about continuous distillation and meteoric iron, please?" I hinted at these up threads, so I'll have to explain these. I'm gonna dig into the meteor. These are two very separate things, not connected, but I'll dig into the meteoric iron one because it's pretty cool. Um. So, when I say meteoric iron, I'm talking about nickel-iron meteorites. They fall from the sky, people pick them up, they are lumps of metal with other inclusions in them. Been around forever, uh, people have always known about them to some degree or another. I'm talking like prehistoric, pre-modern peoples. And they seem to have a particular role in... This is like this is pure speculation to be clear, but it's really exciting, tantalizing speculation. Not provable, not disprovable, but it makes for a good story. So let's roll with it. So yeah, meteoric iron. If we go back to a certain time in history, and this is uh, again another metal history thing. Let's say, um, yeah, like the Neolithic, you know, like early Bronze-ish age, um, various parts of the world. You have a manufacturing status quo that involves fairly simple, soft metals that aren't suitable for everything. Um, you know, you yeah, of course, we've got our, our humble friend, lead. We also have copper. Um, people have been working copper for much longer than they've been smelting it because things like copper, um, gold, silver, you can find them in their elemental form. What that means is as a metal, you can, you know, like gold nuggets. Silver nuggets, copper nuggets, all these things you can just go and pick up off the ground, or more likely in riverbeds where they accumulate because of their weight in what are called placer deposits. Um, These used to be much more common than they are nowadays. Uh, Before people bothered gathering them up, there there was placer deposits in probably every river that you could just wander up to and root around in, which is pretty cool. Um... If we're stuck with copper and softer metals like that, we are not really working with, say, swords yet. Uh, you are, but like they're remarkably shitty. You're limited in size because copper's soft, even if you work hard in it. In some of the early, like, uh, in some of the early recorded battles from like ancient Greece, there are reports of men having to stop every, like, every couple people killed to straighten their swords with their feet. Like, these were, like, just not great materials for, like, weapons and armor. Like, they were making do, but, like, it wasn't stellar. And in that context, you always have a very, very small quantity of meteoric iron, which, compared to things like copper and other lay metals, is really quite hard. And, like, we know that this metal was treated with reverence. I believe it was Tutankhamun had a knife made out of meteoric iron. Um, In Indonesia, I believe it is. I might get that wrong. Please don't yell at me. Um, The traditional knife called a kris is uh, traditionally made with meteoric iron and treated with some, uh, like, significance beyond other other knives. 
um, it crops up all over the place. If they got meteorites and they had a metalworking culture, they tended to make it into stuff. Well, it's like a real world Valyrian steel or something. Yep, yep, yeah. That's that's what I'm getting at. Like I'm working up to it, but yeah, more. Or oh less. wow! I just took the wind out of your sails. That's eh, okay. Oh eh, no, no, not now. Now I don't have to build it up. I can take my time. <laughs> um, so you have meteoric iron, which objectively is compared to your copper and stuff is kind of a super material in comparison it is very rare um you can't smelt it or work it like other metals of the time uh, at least you know if we're talking about bronze age stuff they hadn't worked that out yet and you can't weld it you can't do any of these things but if you make do with what you have you end up with for example blades that will slice clean through any other blade anybody has, through armor anybody has. And on top of that all, we're, it's this metal that literally came from the sky. All the other metals come from the earth. Now, and then we have this very rare, this very exclusive thing that just literally falls out of the goddamn sky. And people, people clearly historically associated them with that because... If you're around long enough, you do like have local meteorite impacts as a big noise, big commotion, and you can actually go out and find pieces of meteorite. And this clearly happened. So when we look at any sort of myths, um, like globally, that involve like divine weapons, you know, like swords, you know, given to people from, you know, like from the co from the heavens, from the cosmos. There's a really strong circumstantial case you can make for meteoric iron weapons actually being the root of these myths, of being like almost divine, supernatural weapons, unparalleled by any other. And it's, of course, we can't prove this, but it's, it's, it's really tantalizing because all the parts fit. And I think one that has even stronger evidence, it's not meteoric iron, if I can take a bit of a detour, um, is with arsenical bronze. Now, we talk about bronze. This is copper alloyed with something else, usually tin, historically. Uh, and it makes the copper stronger, gives it better working properties. Basically, it makes it better for tool use. So bronze, once people worked out how to make bronze, was strongly preferable, and pure copper wasn't used for a ton. Um, this is one of the reasons why tin has always been fairly expensive historically. Uh, tin was one of the biggest drivers of uh, like uh, early uh, like uh, copper and bronze age uh, trade in uh, a lot of the uh, old world. Um, but you can make bronze with things other than tin. Um, you, for example, the one I'm getting at here is you can make bronze, a nice hard good bronze with arsenic as the alloying element. And, you know, arsenic, rat poison, it's not the nicest element to have to work with. Um, in the ancient world, and I'm talking like in, um, um, you know, in like the old, uh, where some of the first states formed uh, in modern day Iraq and in the Middle East, uh, you know, your Sumer and... Uh, all the early states. In that region, there are, um, now they're tapped out, they were totally used up, there are mines, a very small number, where you find ores of copper and arsenic combined. So what happens is if you are a very, very ancient uh, smelter and you are trying to smelt copper, 
from this one mine, you smelt these, you know, these, these, this ore just as you would any other. And what comes at the end is a remarkably strong product, much stronger than copper, much better weapons and tools. Like, this is great stuff. And unlike tin bronze, which has to be alloyed deliberately, like you have to f trade or find the tin, you got to mix it with the copper and do it as its own special process, you can make arsenical bronze basically by accident, just by using the right ore. Very rare ore. Um, yeah, it was only uh, exploited at this time. And, like, you know, we're talking about something in the neighborhood of, you know, like maybe 3,000 to 5,000 BC. I don't have the date on hand, but, you know, quite a fair ways back. Um, in any case, tools, weapons, everything made from this particular ore were stronger than, cop than comparable copper things. These were just like excellent, excellent bronze tools and weapons. And so arsenical bronze was aggressively um, pursued, but it came at a cost. Arsenic, exposure to arsenic, as would happen to people who were smelting it, and as we saw with our uh, Greek and Roman lead smelters, they would get arsenic poisoning. And one of the most common or earliest uh, neurological symptoms of chronic arsenic poisoning is a loss of control of your extremities, like a, a difficulty making your feet and hands, particularly the feet at first, I guess something to do with the longest nerves, um, they stop doing exactly what you want. And the relevance of all this is that a whole bunch of um, European cultures that are derived from the Proto-Indo-Europeans, uh, go look them up, they all share some sort of common um, blacksmith or uh, like metalworking god who has um, some sort of issue um, with his with mobility or his legs or some sort of um, disability. It's usually never specified, but um, okay. So some of those gods. Um, that I mentioned are, for example, Hephaestus, uh, the Greek god of blacksmiths, um, the Roman equivalent, Vulcan, even the Norse equivalent, uh, Wayland the smith, uh, was described as having some sort of mobility issue or uh, an issue. Um, sometimes they're mentioned as having like a, like almost wheelchairs of sorts, like um, they've been depicted with chariots, like just for them. So we end up with what looks like a very clear indicator of smiths having arsenic poisoning in prehistoric times, and this being reflected straight up in the mythology of those cultures. Not only that, but you have like the, if you will, the top metal workers, like literally the metalworking gods of each individual culture, being the ones afflicted with this, uh, this, this basically occupational uh, disease which was derived directly from producing arsenical bronze, which is, at the time, if all you have is copper otherwise, pretty much one of the best metals you can get. Now, this period where that was the only thing around would have been fairly short because we don't actually know how long it was, but people worked out tin uh, bronzes pretty fast as being preferable to arsenical bronzes because, like, they don't kill their workers in the same way. But... Um, 
yeah, there's this really strong circumstantial link between all of these gods of old and this this weird this weird commonality that runs through all of them of having what's basically a clear symptom of arsenic poisoning. So basically you can look at it as an occupational injury that was so common that it was enshrined in ancient mythology and passed down to us in this way. In fact, it's one of the best indicators that all these cultures had access to bronze smelting, or at the very least had awareness of bronze smelting, um, arsenical bronze smelting in particular, as it existed at the time. Yeah. Crazy. (laughs) I love that. I love that uh, we can find possible explanations for things that seem supernatural, you know, way back when. I mean, it might be a little bit of a reach, you know, like, again, there's this, 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 no one's ever found a tablet that says, oh, yeah, 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 this is based off this shit. But it's really tantalizing to think that we can just draw this really clear link between some mythology we have virtually no understanding of at all to a really concrete, everyday thing that people had experience with at the time thousands and thousands of years ago. Ah, I don't know. It's the kind of thing that keeps me awake at night. What else? Ooh, okay. Not quite as exciting as Meteoric Iron or Cynical Bronze, but still compelling. Eleonora Gerchak, again, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, asks, what would you change to improve our Canadian political system? Well, I got a laundry list of things, not all of them. Um... If I ran through the whole thing, it would probably take an hour and a half to two hours, so we're not going to do that. But I can start with some low-hanging fruit that it's actually imaginable, conceivable, maybe even a little bit realistic. Basically, I would say my two biggest grievances is first past the post and existing major political parties. Allow me to explain. You've heard a lot of stuff in the news about First Past the Post um, and the issues surrounding it, maybe not in much detail. You know, the liberals were promised to reform it, and then, bizarrely enough, once they're in power, they're like, "Uh, I don't know, we gotta see. Which, you know, should give you lots of confidence in their commitment to producing a fair and equitable uh, electoral system. In any case... Um, to explain a bit why people have asked for this change and the issues seen with uh, First Past the Post. Um, First Past the Post, common system in using Canada, the U.S., all kinds of other places. Uh, basically, you elect a, you vote to elect a representative. Um, that representative represents your uh, local geographic region on, you know, a provincial, national level. And... Um, winner takes all. Whoever gets the highest, whichever candidate gets the highest vote uh, locally is the person who represents that region. If it's, you know, 51-49, the 51% gets it, and the 49% effectively don't really have any representation. Uh, First past the post tends to produce a small number of large political parties. Um... I mean, if you look at, you know, Canada and the U.S., I think they're both fairly good uh, representations of that. I mean, if you look at other European countries, some of them, you know, you're often talking about, like, 
sometimes dozens of political parties, all of which acting in coalitions can like actually have some real influence over things. And even the biggest parties will never have like a real true 50% plus uh, majority. Um, because yeah, that, that, that winner takes all uh, tendency just concentrates votes in certain parties. Um, now this is great if you love the status quo and love the major parties as they represent you and your beliefs. It's not so great if they don't. And I, I personally don't believe that any of the major parties represent, uh, certainly not my own beliefs, but most people's beliefs particularly well. I mean, I'm no, it's no secret that I'm no fan of the conservatives, to put it like, to put it lightly. Um, I wouldn't expect most listeners of this show to be either. But I mean, the other parties aren't. The other like viable parties, like for actual like provincial national leadership, like they're pretty goddamn shitty too. Like I mean, like the liberals, you know, like they're they believe you know they're Canada's national ruling party. Their main goal is to see the liberals win every election forever. <sighs> kind of like the U.S. Democrats, they don't really seem to have much in the way of tangible beliefs. You know, if we look at Trudeau's admittedly winning strategy, it's pretty much pay a bunch of lip service to progressive causes while basically enacting Harper conservative level economic and social policy when people aren't looking. And the NDP, I, I mean, you know, like you, you, you you wanna you wanna love them you wanna be fans but it's like just eh, so many elections and they've been just been such a goddamn disappointment ever since I mean you know since like Jack Layton died but I mean you know even he during his time the decline was already starting in terms of them not really having much in the way of real beliefs or a belief system I mean if you look at the modern NDP now it's I don't think they actually wanna win. I think, you know, being the third-run party is, like, a great meal ticket for a lot of, you know, their 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 members, their staff, especially, you know, like, the, the their executives. And I, yeah, like, I mean, they might be the best of the major parties that we have, but they're still really just not that good. We can do better. We can do much better. And first past the post counts again against us and anybody else who is in that position because it makes it very hard for small parties to have much say or to even get a foothold if they don't already have one. Uh, the alternative, proportional representation, uh, which has been proposed, which the liberals will never roll with because it'll hurt them, uh, conservatives won't roll with because it'll hurt them, um, is where you don't vote for like an individual rep, you vote at the national level, and the proportion of the vote determines representation. Um, if 25% of people vote for the NDP and 35% vote for the Liberals, the, repre the representatives in Ottawa will actually reflect that. You will have 25% of your representatives being NDP, 35% being Liberals, and so on. So that means that small parties tend to have a dynamic where they get non-negligible votes in lots and lots and lots of ridings. But because it's never enough to actually win a seat, 
they get no representation despite, you know, that 5-10% of the population, whatever it happens to be, voting for them. Proportional representation will see that 5-10% actually get 5-10% representation in government. Now, intuitively, that seems very fair to most people, I think. When you just explain the actual dynamic and, you know, don't coach it in scare, you know, scare terms like happens pretty much any time the issue comes up, because lots of people don't want to see it change because it works against them. If you explain the actual dynamic to people, it's intuitively fair and reasonable. <sighs> Unfortunately, of course, it hurts the powers that be. Anybody who currently has, anybody who's currently in government has no interest in this because it'll immediately uh, reduce their power. Um, so you can't really count on any of the major parties supporting this. It works against them and will work against them forever. So I w would never expect, you know, the liberals, conservatives, probably the NDP. They they might they might go for it. They might. I think it would it would it would help them nationally. But the two big parties, the ones who are likely to hold power, they're never going to go for PR, which is unfortunate. But they would go for it if their hands were forced. As usual, if people give enough of a shit and make it clear that, for example, votes and support are contingent on something like this in a real way, they might change their mind. I don't see that as happening in the next election, um, unless something noteworthy happens, because Trudeau's liberals are very good at making a lot of nice-sounding noise and then doing very little of that noise. But you never know. So if you're talking about immediate here and now tangible things, realistic, achievable things we could do to improve Canadian politics, it would probably start with going with uh, an electoral system that enabled smaller parties to gain a real foothold in some say in government, and then following up with that by putting those smaller parties in positions of some power not even power i don't you know expect the, the small parties to you know to go win but they would have a say and that alone if we're looking at you know the conservatives and the liberals as like the parties that alternate power in most contexts like that's that can only be a good thing right i mean i don't think anybody really loves the liberals or conservatives they just, like, they, they, they put up with them because they don't have much better. They don't have anybody who really represents them, but it's like, well, shit, you don't want the conservatives, so liberals are probably going to win, but for them. It's a depressing way to approach the issue, and we can do better with an electoral system that doesn't create that impetus. So, yeah. I like that. Ensure that you don't throw your vote away because so many times people are just like, uh, you know, I'd vote for Green Party or something, but it would just be throwing my vote away. Yeah. Now, see, that's I mean, I hear it all the time and I've even thought that myself. It's not it's 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 not I I don't think it holds a ton of water insofar as. Oh. Now, I believe the, um, the, the party subsidy for votes is still in place. Uh, it may have been removed, so this might just me, be me putting egg on my face and then smearing the egg around. But I was always a fan of the couple dollars that you voting for any party on a federal level 
those couple dollars would be given to the party for your vote. You vote for someone, any party, tiny or big, they get a couple bucks just for voting. It's not a political donation. It's just a way of allocating funding based on support. So it, it was, and again, I remember hearing some noise about them, about Harper's government removing it. I don't know if it ever actually happened. I should know this, but I don't, but I'm talking off the cuff. I always saw that as a kind of like a, kind of a, like a ghost image of PR. Like there was a sort of proportional funding, if not representation. And of course, you know, you're like two bucks and 60 cents or whatever it was going to your own, you know, little party that supports, you know, actually what you believe in. That does so much more than those two bucks and 60 cents going, going to the liberals or conservatives both of who already rely on rich-ass donors giving everything they can and making sure their, like, infant kids give as much as they can, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, for actual funding. They don't give a shit about your, you know, couple vote dollars, but that means a lot to people who don't have big funders and uh, deep pockets. So, in the sense of, you know, like, oh, you're throwing your vote away. Well, maybe, maybe not, if you know, you're, you're, you're helping to fund a cause or a party that represents who you believe with. That was something that I always thought was a, a nice little aspect of the Canadian electoral system. I like that. Ooh, we have flatness. Who asked for flatness? Oh, that's a question, not a person's name. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, not a person. Oh, Devin Telfer, my main man, Devin Telfer. He asked about 80 questions that I uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, gave prompts about. Um, and I do appreciate him just letting me talk about whatever. But I'm going to roll with his last one. How, do you, how, <laughs> how did you personally solve the 19th century engineering struggle to make things flat? Um, first off, I'm sorry to disappoint. I did not personally solve it. Um, I was actually living in South America in the early uh, uh, 1800s, so I couldn't have solved this as these developments were made in Europe. <sighs> now I'm really curious. I have no idea what this could even possibly be about. <laughs> oh, the, uh, well, like the, the, the um, I'm going to ruin the joke and say that like the, uh, the meta context here is that uh, Devin is um, quite convinced that I'm a vampire. Um, and, you know, that I've been uh, steering world history and events for, like, untold eons. And, you know, I'm a force of evil in the world, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I do get an Illuminati vibe from you. Yeah, like that's, I mean, it is, it gets fair enough. Reasonable. I mean, I can't confirm or deny, but it's, eh, yeah, like he's, he's done his homework. He's, he's on, he might be onto something. That's all I'll say. And he asked, yeah, how did I personally, didn't solve it, but thank you, solve the 19th century engineering struggle to make things flat. This has to do with machine tools. Um, machine tools, which I'm a machinist, so these are my bread and butter. Um, machine tools are things like lathes, uh, mills, grinding machines, basically anything that you would use to make something very precise. Um, machine tool, the machine tool industry was driven by, uh, largely by uh, weapons and firearm development, uh, steam engines, basically early industrial projects that needed, that had a real need for consistency, accuracy, and repeatability in manufacturing. The very first machine tool was a screw machine. All it does is make screws. Because before that, 
each and every screw, each and every screw, if you needed a screw, had to be cut by hand Whoa. with files. You would sit there with a metal file and file this goddamn screw from this little piece of metal rod. It was nightmarish. You never used screws for anything if you could because a screw cost as much as like a day laborer's wages. It was, it was, is I had no, no idea. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a good scene. Screws were, they, 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 there was a good, there was a big drive to find a way to make screws that were fairly repeatable because, ah, and the other thing about early screws is that they only worked in one hole. There was no standard for, like, there was no standardization of screw sizes. You would cut a screw according to how you wanted the screw to look or how your shop made screws, and you would make sure it fit in one hole. And if you mixed it up or lost that screw, you would have to go to the original manufacturer and source a matching replacement. Or you never could. It's like, we take this shit for granted, but like, holy guacamole, it was just nightmarish. So there was a very strong impetus to automate these things. The first machine tool, a thing that cut screws, fantastic. Saves so much of everybody's time uh, when it comes to just boring, repetitive stuff. But early machine tools, they pretty quickly, like the potential was realized. People saw like what, we could do with this. You could make screws. You could bore the. You could, you could bore out steam engine cylinders with accuracy. Nobody else had imagined it was possible. But the issue is that each machine tool was unique. Each one was accurate enough. You would, you know, have your screw machine, and it would make the screws that it was designed to make, and all the screws in that machine would be more or less the same, but between two machines, there was likely to be a fair amount of error. And people didn't know how to make the machines themselves more consistency, more consistent. So they were working towards this ideal of like consistency and repeatability. But the thing holding them back, and this is about like about the year 1800 surrounding that, was that they had no way to standardize the machines. There was no reference point. If you, if you said, okay, give me something that's really flat, people could look at it and be like, well, that looks pretty goddamn flat, but they didn't have any better than that. And very basic things, like being able to determine, you know, what's a really flat surface, like true flat, that was a reference point that you could standardize things from. And that reference point didn't exist. People had no way to make it. And if you think about it, it is like it's like intuitively, it is something that you wouldn't really know how to deal with. If you need, uh, you know, if you need a piece of wood that's exactly five inches long to be a standard for everything else that needs to be five inches long, you need a ruler. And if you don't have a ruler, how do you make the first ruler? So when it came to flatness, which is something that they needed to work out to get um, certain parts of the machines had to be flat, you know, they had to be parallel. And there was no easy way to do that without existing references. The man who solved it in a way that is used straight up until the current day was named Joseph Whitworth. He was a British engineer. Um, and in the early 1800s, his big paper on this subject came out in 1840. It was a very clever thing called the three-plate method. Which, before this, people had realized that um, when you needed really flat things, you would lap them. Which is, for example, you would get two steel plates that looked flat enough. You'd get them as flat as you could. And then you would put some abrasive compound on them, like uh, just some grit, uh, a little bit of water or oil maybe, and you'd rub them together. And eventually they would, you know, as far as you could tell, they would each, each one would be perfectly flattened by rubbing against the other. Because the high points get knocked down more than the low points do, so it all evens out. 
But the problem with this, people realized pretty fast, was that rubbing two plates together produces what was referred to as a ball and socket effect. Like you can't really see it, but you would end up with you would end up with two parts that weren't perfectly flat, but reflected each other's inaccuracies. Like the ball and socket is like an exaggerated uh, representation of the actual dynamic where you have one that's kind of rounded and the other one that's kind of concave. They seem to be perfectly flat and rub against each other nicely, but in fact, they're not. So people didn't know how to deal with that. And Joseph Whitworth worked out a very clever method where instead of rubbing these two plates together, you used three. And he also moved away from lapping, which it, it sands everything, to scraping, which is using just like a plain old hardened steel scraper, often basically just a bar of steel with like a bevel ground into it, and using it to selectively shave off just very, very, very small amounts of steel from the high points. And you found those high points by putting a substance on the plates, uh, usually it's called engineer's bluing, and you'd rub them together, and where the bluing gets rubbed off is the high points, and you would keep rubbing until there were no more visible high points or you had the accuracy you wanted. But the real key was using three plates. By alternating between them in a, in a specific sequence, you were able to eliminate the ball and socket effect um, by introducing that third plate that did not have that, that, that like A to B match uh, worked into it, you disrupted things. And if you alternated in the correct sequence, you would eventually end up with three plates that are all ground to an average flatness that was very high. Um, in fact, some like the early um, flat uh, flat surface plates made this way, people couldn't measure how accurate they were. They had no reference. It took until, uh, I think, the early 20th century for devices that could measure down to like the micron, sub-micron level that anybody could actually tell how flat surface plates really are. And it's it's kind of almost, it's, it's, remar it's remarkably clever because it's a way of producing just an almost perfect flat, like not perfect, perfect, but like for all intents and purposes, perfect flat surface, a number of them actually, from nothing. You can do it with almost no resources. It was just understanding the dynamics of what was happening and why you were getting this ball and socket effect and compensating for it. So once we worked out this three-plate method for scraping plates very flat, that was one of the big hurdles that was overcome in terms of producing uh, standardized machine tools. Before that, if you had a lathe, uh, the... Um, you know, like uh, certain parts, like the, they would only be so flat and the next machine wouldn't have the same flatness. Now you could actually create a standard against which you could compare them. And all the machines coming out of a given factory would be as flat as X or Y. And that was the big hurdle that, um, that was stopping standardization of these things. And after that, you started getting consistency in tools, and that was that was really like the last big big hurdle for um, machining and like precision manufacturing stuff. After that, it's all about materials, coming up with better tooling, better alloys for cutter stuff like that. But like that was that was the big hurdle, not knowing how to make something flat, and they worked it out like with basically nothing. So you can do it today. You can scrape your own plate with almost nothing. And you can, you, can, you can just go home and do it on your own time and you can have these plates and you'll know they are flat to within some ridiculous deviation. Like, you know, like a several, you know, hundred thousandths or millionths of an inch from true flat. And yeah, you can do it. It's not actually that hard. So 
it's one of those it's it's a nice little little story um i like that i might actually uh go home after this make some dinner and uh scrape a plate of my own oh my god it's so boring you'll regret it um like it's like if if you have to do this stuff it's actually really cool to do is like a foundational kind of thing like you know walking in the the footsteps of your forefathers kind of thing Mm -hmm. like just just seeing how the trade develop and getting an appreciation for holy shit i take so much for granted here but yeah it's boring if you need a surface plate it's actually a decent cheap way to make your own if you got the time but otherwise it's kind of a novelty it's cool though cool to know about and I think that is about all the time we have for today. I hope you folks enjoyed this. It's a little different from the uh, formula I thought we were going to roll with, but it's been fun. And, of course, I can talk forever and ever and ever and ever if Koji doesn't um, just signal that I should stop because he needs to, like, do other things with his life, which is extremely fair. I need to go home and scrape plates. Oh, oh, there you go. Great. Fantastic. So yeah, I hope you guys have enjoyed this and I hope you're looking forward to the next show. Might be a little different. We're going to see what we're going to roll with. Probably won't be the same as this week. Well, if you have any non-metal related questions, they can send them your way via email. Yes, 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 yes. The best way for you to send me your questions is at askboris at buns.com. If I'm posting a thread, it'll probably be in the help zone or... Maybe the anger zone, home zone, I don't know, I'll mix it up. You can feel free to ask it in the comments, of course. But if you want to ask something anonymous, uh, email's probably going to be the way you're going you're to want to go. Um, yep. Again, that's askboris at buns.com. Yep, or you can post on a thread, you can DM me, Boris Pavlovich. Um, yeah, messenger pigeon, I'm open. You yeah. Know, I'm easy. This... Get him with your weird and wonderful questions, Buns, because... Yeah, uh, oh, my God. The weirder they are, the better. I mm-hmm. love extremely weird questions that make me, like, put my head in my hands for, like, five minutes when I see them. And then I just kind of sigh deeply and I, like, start doing research. Those are, like, actually the best. So, please, hit me with your weird shit that, like, you would be worried about, like, friends and family finding out you asked me. Those are the best questions for sure. Absolutely. If you're wondering what that red spot is on your butt, feel free to ask him and send photos along with a question and uh, hopefully we can get that sorted out for you yeah 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 i will question what i'm doing with my life i will uh schedule an extra appointment with my therapist it'll be fantastic and i'm looking forward to it all right thanks man uh hopefully we can put that vampire knowledge to uh to good use <laughs> until next time see ya. <laughs>